2006, Peggy Noonan, a famed conservative political correspondent and columnist, wrote a moving piece for the Wall Street Journal entitled, The Sounds That Still Echo From 9-11. Five years later, final phone calls from people killed in the attacks reverberate with strength and grace, unquote. Now on the cusp of the 16-year anniversary of that tragic day, her words and remembrance are no less poignant as she recounts the contents of some of those voicemails and messages left for loved ones in their final moments of life. I want to share with you this morning some of those. Flight 93, flight attendant C.C. Lyles, 33 years old, in an answering machine message to her husband said, quote, please tell my children that I love them very much. I'm sorry, baby. I wish I could see your face again, unquote. Fire Captain Walter Hines on his wife's voicemail just before rolling out of Ladder Company 13, heading toward the towers, said, honey, it's real bad, he said. I don't know if we'll make it out. And I want to tell you that I love you and I love the kids. Moises Rivas 29, a chef at Windows on the World, the renowned restaurant at the top of the North Tower, reached his stepdaughter, Linda Berrigan, who relayed his message to his wife. He said not to worry, he's okay. He said he loves you no matter what happens. He loves you, and that's it. International trade consultant Melissa Harrington Hughes, 31, also stuck in one of the towers, called her father Bob Harrington at home, in Massachusetts at 8.55 a.m., nine after uh, 8.55 a.m., after the first plane struck the North Tower. He tried to calm her and told her he loved her, and she said, I love you too, Dad. And then she said, you have to do me a favor. You have to call Sean and tell him where I am and tell him that I love him. Twelve minutes later, at 9.07 a.m., Melissa was able to make a second call to her newlywed husband, Sean, who was asleep in San Francisco, and leave a message. Sean, she said, it's me. I just wanted to let you know I love you, and I'm stuck in this building in New York, and there's a lot of smoke, and I just wanted to let you know that I will love you always. American Airlines Flight 77, as it was winging toward the Pentagon, political commentator Barbara Olson called her husband, U.S. Solicitor General Ted Olson. She discreetly tried to share information with him about how the situation was unfolding. She said, it's going to come out okay. And her last words were, I love you. United Flight 93, passenger Mark Bingham called his mother and got her voicemail. I want you to know I love you very much and I'm calling you from the plane. We've been taken over. And there are three men who say they've got a bomb. Also on United Flight 175, Brian Sweeney called his wife, got the answering machine and told her that they'd been hijacked. He said, hopefully I'll talk to you again, but if not, have a good life I know I'll see you again someday. Then there was Tom Burnett's famous call from United Flight 93. We're all going to die, but three of us are going to do something about it, he told his wife, Deanna. I love you, honey. And on that same flight, another passenger was ready to do something, Todd Beamer. Spent several minutes on the phone with the cellular customer service representative, Lisa Jefferson, and together they prayed 
Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. And then turning back to his fellow passengers, he said, are you ready? Let's roll. These are just a sampling of the hundreds of calls and messages that poured out from the chaos that morning. Regarding these messages, Noonan observed this, quote, something terrible had happened. Life was reduced to its essentials. Time was short. People said what counted, what mattered. It has been noted that there is no record of anyone calling to say, I never liked you or you hurt my feelings. No one negotiated past grievances or said, vote for Smith. Amazingly or not, there is no record of anyone damning the terrorists or saying, I hate them. No one said anything unneeded, extraneous, or small. Then she said, Crisis is a great editor. These were people saying, essentially, in spite of my imminent death, my thoughts are on you and on how much I love you. I asked a psychiatrist the other day for his thoughts, and he said the people on the planes and in the towers were accepting the inevitable and taking care of unfinished business. At death's door, people pass on a responsibility. Tell Billy I never stopped loving him and forgave him long ago. Take care of mom. Pray for me, father. Pray for me. I haven't been very good. They address what needs doing at the time. Now, how about you? If all you had left were a few scant moments and a cell phone, what would your concerns boil down to this morning? Who would you call? What would you say? How would crisis edit your life? So let's just take a moment right now and stop and ponder that thought. What call would you make right now if you were plunged into crisis mode? What's stopping you from making it? Maybe there's a person sitting in this church right now that you need to speak to and deal with some unfinished business. Maybe you should have done it before you took communion. What is the roadblock? What is the hesitation? We're not in crisis. We don't know the end from the beginning. Crisis is a great editor, isn't it? And for some reason, we don't operate as if our life could end today. But suppose we did. How different do you suppose our interaction with each other would be? Over the last few messages, I believe the Holy Spirit through the pen of James has been trying to get us to think these things through. As this letter unfolds before us, 
It's pretty clear that James is trying to minister truth to his people. People who were in somewhat of a crisis in that day, but those but whose difficulties in life had caused them rather to scatter and to divide and to drift spiritually. Instead of focusing on what really mattered as evil in the world increased around them, it seemed as if their love was growing cold. In the midst of their trials, they were not exhibiting heavenly wisdom. They were turning into angry, impatient people who neglected the poor, favored the wealthy, whose faith was more talk than walk, and whose tongues ran amok. They claimed to be faithful and wise, yet the character of their lives proved otherwise. Unbridled speech, wrong attitudes, doubt, internal strife, and carnality, and the shallow faith is what began to characterize these people to which James was writing. They were Christians living in the world, but to their shame, they were also acting as if they were of it. And James' letter hit the problem head on. Here is what faith on the front line is supposed to look like, according to James. When it's stretched, it doesn't break. When it's pressed, it doesn't fail. When expressed, it doesn't explode. And as we will come to see, as we get toward the end of the letter, when it's distressed, it doesn't panic. Real faith that says the Lord's brother James produces genuine stability, genuine love, genuine humility, and genuine patience. Now the parallels to the contemporary church are not hard to detect. And it behooves us to ask ourselves in all sincerity some hard questions that, that one author put forth. In light of these two contrasting pictures of the wise and the unwise that we looked at last time in verses 13 to 18 of chapter 3, with which portrait do you identify, those with heavenly wisdom or those with earthly wisdom? Do you struggle with the jealousy of others' successes is your life motivated by personal pursuits at the cost of peace? Or have these inward feelings and outward actions affected those around you? How have they done that? Do disorder and pettiness mark your life? Are you, do you pursue the things of the world rather than the things of God? All of these questions are begged by the text that we looked at last week. James says, is your life characterized by gentleness and humility? Do people know you as a person of mercy, authenticity, and peace? Do you act the same way at home as you do at work or at church or at, in public? Do you build others up, rejoice at their successes, place the needs and interests of others ahead of your own, or do you leave harmony and joy in your wake? That'd be great, wouldn't it? James has really given us a run, hasn't he, so far? I mean, really, week after week, text after text, we're dealing with some tough stuff in this book. It's like running a marathon up Pike's Peak, <laughs> which, by the way, they do just about this time of year, 14,000 feet of elevation, they run, Today's text really doesn't give us much relief from the tack that James has been taking. Actually, 
He's stepping it up in this text. But the neat thing about it is at the end, he offers a ray of light. True faith, he says, is not conformed to the world. It operates in it for sure, but it is not supposed to be of it. And if it is, we're not painting a very good picture of Christ to those around us, are we? We're depraved and deprived and a deplorable people when we do, when we act like the world. Yet as those who belong to Christ, we are also a desirable people to to God the Father who loves us with an unconditional love and who pours out his grace to all who seek it and will receive it. And that's the end of the matter in this text, according to James. But before we get there, we've got some serious climbing to do in this text. So look at James chapter four with me. In the first, we're gonna read verses one to six. What is the source of your quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and you do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. And you ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. But he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now, rather than beginning a new topic, which the chapter division would indicate here, and by the way, I hope you know by now, if you're students of the Bible, that punctuation, verse numbers, and chapter divisions are not part of the original manuscripts. So I firmly believe then that James is not only continuing what he started in verses 13, 18, but expanding his conversation on the previous themes, specifically the conflicts which result from the lack of humility, which is the ultimate product of heavenly wisdom. So I think at the beginning here of chapter four, he's continuing that same argument, but getting in a little deeper. So selfish ambition and bitter envy and the resulting chaos and divisiveness that it causes is not of God, James is saying. Rather, it mimics the cosmos, the world, the world system around us, which according to 1 John chapter 5 and verse 19 is constantly under the power of who? The evil one. Look it up, 1 John 5, 19. That's what it says. So all of this fussing and fighting, if you're a Beatles fan, that should bring up a song. All of this fussing and fighting that occurs among friends, among believers, have reasons and results attached to them which also require a remedy which when accomplished brings forth a reward. I've just outlined the next three messages for you. Causes, consequences, and cures. 
That's what this chapter, chapter four, is dealing with and what we will be addressing over the next few messages. So let's look at some of the causes for fighting among believers. James highlights three in this text. I'll give them to you right up front in case we get bogged down. Number one is the depravity of our pleasures. Number two is the poverty of our prayers. And number three is the deplorability of our allegiances. Those are the causes. First, the depravity of our pleasures, verses one and two. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you, James asks. Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? Because you lust and you do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. James uses some very interesting words here in this text. In the original, they're all military terms. Quarrels and conflicts, for example, refer to wars and battles and strife. Quarrels, pictures of chronic state of war, a general term. The second word refers to more specific and individualized skirmishes, personal disputes, and attacks. Now, it's no surprise that as Christians, we are engaged in a spiritual war. Amen? We know that. But the picture here that James is painting is of a Christian community fraught with internal problems. Look at verse 1. Among you, right? What is the source of quarrels and conflicts? Not out there. Where? Among you. Specific details are not given here, but there's an awful lot of unrest and infighting happening amongst believers, creating this intense need for peacemakers, which he referred to in verse 18 of chapter 3. Now, wherever there are people, there will be battles. Anybody testify to that? Point taken. And some battles arguably need to be fought. No question about it. But, James says, or he implies, they ought to be fought without compromising Christian principles and virtues. It's clear this was not happening in this church. So James zeroes in on the source and origin of their fussing and fighting. And get ready because this is where it gets personal with me and you. What's the source? James answers it. Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? James says, it's your personal pleasures that are causing these rifts. We would like to place the blame on the devil, wouldn't we? We'd like to point the finger at Satan, wouldn't we? We'd like to chalk it up to bad teaching from the pulpit or bad leadership practices from the offices, or maybe a few disruptive people who are not agreeing with the sound doctrine put forth by the church. But no, it's not any of that, according to James. He identifies the culprit as our own lusts and pleasures which wage war in our members. The word he uses here for pleasures is the word we get our English word hedonism from. Taken in a negative sense here, it refers to self-indulgent, sinful pleasures and desires. Gospel writer Luke uses the same exact term in quoting Jesus' parable of the good seed that fell among the thorns and had the life choked out of it. 
In Luke 8, 14, Jesus said, the seed which fell among the thorns, these are the ones who have heard. And as they go on their way, they are choked with worries and riches. And here it is, the pleasures of this life. And they bring no fruit to maturity. This is sheer hedonistic worldliness. Plain and simple. James identifies it. Left unchecked, it will choke the life out of you and eventually try to squeeze it out of the entire church. And it's increasingly becoming part of our times, isn't it? 2 Timothy chapter 3. Just turn there for a minute and just look at this verse. 2 Timothy chapter 3. A couple of verses here, verses 1 to 4. But realize this, Paul writes, that in the last days, difficult times will come, for men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of God, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, now the big climax, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Is not the source of your conflict your pleasures? It's these selfish desires that are most often the source of conflicts and disunity in churches. They wage war, James says, in our members. Waging war, that's another strong military word referring to a continuing campaign and an ongoing battle. In other words, this is war and it's an in-house war and it's in our members, not just collectively as a church, but most likely here referring to the members of our own bodies and soul. The NIV says within you, right? The things that the conflicts within you that wage war in your members, the conflicts among you are the result of the conflicts within you, basically. Peter and Paul both give us insight here. First Peter chapter 2 and verse 11, Peter writes, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Paul in Romans chapter 6, refers to it the same way. I'm sure you've recognized this before. Romans 6, verse 12. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting what? The members, your members of your body, the physical parts of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Verse 19 speaking in human terms, because of the weakness of your flesh, for just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. That means being holy. Verse 22, but now having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit, resulting in sanctification and the outcome eternal life. For the wages of sin is what? Death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. Where? Through Christ. John MacArthur says the unregenerate man is a slave to his desires. That's scriptural. 
Do you understand that? He's a slave to those desires. It's a frightening slavery. And believe me, passion is a cruel master. Oscar Wilde, the great playwright, who when he was discovered to be a homosexual and was publicly disgraced, said this, quote, I forgot that what a man does in secret, he someday will shout from the housetop. And then he cried out, passion is a cruel master, unquote. And this is what Paul is talking about in Romans chapter 7 and verse 23 when he says, see, I see this different law in the members of my body waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin which is in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? But then he gives us the answer, doesn't he? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other with my flesh, the law of sin. And if you go to Galatians chapter 5 and you were to read down through 60 verses 16 to 21, you'll see that this battle between the flesh and the spirit is constantly going on with our members. And it causes all kinds of social sins, relational sins, religious sins, and, and he lists them off. And then he says, but the deeds of the flesh, really the fruit of the spirit, are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, right? Self-control. Listen, the enemy of our souls may indeed wreak havoc with us. But we, James says, we are the ones to blame for our petty arguments and strife. The source is our passions, our selfish desires. He makes it clear. And you know what the antidote is? The antidote is found in Romans chapter 13, verses 13 and 14. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife or in jealousy. Here's the antidote. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. But you know what happens when we fail to take that route? And this is something we have to do constantly. Yeah, you put Christ on when you come to salvation, but you got to renew, you got to put him on every single day, don't you? And when we fail to take that route, the outcome is verse 2 in James 4. You lust and you do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. Now, James isn't messing around here, is he? He's calling a spade a spade. He's out with it. You lust, period. You are envious, period. And the word means to be zealous or to hotly desire something, to boil with passion and envy, anger and hatred. And the tense of the word here reveals that it's a habitual, ongoing thing. You're burning for something, he says, that you don't have and you cannot have. In a word, it's covetousness. 
and the struggle that is disrupting their unity and leading to disorder in every evil thing, according to chapter 3, verse 16, is the result of a covetous, selfish, envious desire to acquire what they do not have or they cannot have. Let me make this statement to you and see if it doesn't prove true. Frustrated desire breeds strife. And left unrestrained will lead to death. That's what James says here. You lust and you do not have, so you what? Commit murder. Here's the parallelism that we see here. Uncontrolled desire plus unfulfilled desire leads to violence. The next phrase, you are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel, is unrestrained envy plus unresolved frustration leads to strife. And the combination of all of these things is incendiary. The profound quintessential New Testament example of this is the stated reason that Jesus was given over to Pilate by the chief priests for crucifixion. You know what it says in Mark chapter 15, why he was given over? Because of what? Envy. Because of envy. Mark chapter 15, verse 10. For he, meaning Pilate, was aware that the chief priests had handed him over because of envy. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to ask him to release Barabbas for them instead. And answering again, Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with him who you call the king of the Jews? And they shouted back, what? Crucify him. Envy, so you commit murder. If you go to the... Acts chapter 5, and look at a few verses there in chapter 13. The persecution of the apostles by the Jews was attributed to the fact that they were filled with jealousy. James warns us. He warns his people with some pretty hefty words. You lust and you do not have, so you commit murder. So the question that it begs is, so was murder actually being committed by the church in James' day? Some scholars believe it may have been happening as the background of many of James' readers included zealots with a violent tradition. Seems odd, however, to me that James would drop that serious charge and then move on so quickly. An alternative suggestion by commentators and one that is most relevant to the church today is that James was likely using the term in a spiritual sense in the same way Jesus did on the Sermon on the Mount, meaning you are so mad that you're murderously evil. You're murderously mad. In other words, you are so angry at your brother that if looks could kill, they'd be dead. Such is the extent, James says, of your selfish anger. And that's what, Matt, that's what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, wasn't it? In verse 21, you have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not commit murder. And whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I'm telling you right now, Jesus said, I say to you that everyone who's angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever says, you fool, you godless fool, 
shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Yet there's still another alternative. Is that this is a reference to hypothetical eventuality. Nice term, huh? Like that? Hypothetical eventuality rather than present reality. In other words, if you hate, if your hate for your brother or sister is, were to run its course left unrestrained, murder's the eventual end. Because a heart full of hate is capable of murder. Have you ever thought, I wish you were dead in the heat of an argument to somebody? Same deal. 1 John chapter 3 addresses that. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 15 says, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. You don't have to actually do it. All you got to do is hate somebody. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. See, that's the exact opposite of what James is talking about. None of us is immune to the sad results of the power of an unrestrained desire to have what we cannot obtain. David's lust for Bathsheba and his desire to have what he could not legally have led eventually to murder, the murder of her husband, Uriah. And given a certain set of circumstances, I'm telling you right now, because James says it and Jesus says it, the possibility that you and I could do the same thing is very much there. And you're saying, you're saying, nah, that would never happen to me. Please don't think for one moment that James is not, is writing to his first century readers has no application to you and me. But for the grace of God, David's reality could be our potentiality. James's readers may not have been literally killing each other but the potential for it was there because fighting and quarrels and sibling rivalry due to envy and selfish ambition were already in evidence. Allowing these sins to eventually run their course to their bitter end would have been murderously devastating, James says. We only need to read as far as the fourth chapter of Genesis about Cain and Abel to see the deathly trajectory of sibling rivalry. Amen? Our families, our marriages, our country, and our world are racked with domestic and social violence, human conflict, verbal tirades, unreasonable arguments, and unquenchable rage. Murder, wars, and rumors of wars abound, and it can all be traced back to envious, lustful, wrongful desires to covet and claim what others have and we do not. Whether power, position, or possession. And it seems that throughout history, the same source of conflict has repeatedly plagued the church of Jesus Christ. You know what it is? James said it in a word. It's the depravity of our pleasures. But James surmises that the reason you don't have is rooted in something else. In verses, the second part of verse 2, the last sentence, and then in verse 3, that something else is the poverty 
of our prayers. You do not have, James says, because you do not ask. And then you ask and you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. And that in itself is multifaceted, this poverty of prayers. James says, first, you don't have because you don't ask. Second, even if you do ask, you ask with wrong motives. Literally, you ask with evil motives. You, you ask wrongly so that you may spend it on your pleasures. The terminology there, spend it, suggests that like the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15 and verse 14, who spent, same word, all of his father's inheritance on worldly pursuits, the spending here that James is talking about indicates self-indulgence. In other words, their prayers were pleasure-motivated. Sort of like praying the internet meme, Lord, if you won't make me skinny, please make all my friends look fat. Right? It's a wrong prayer. Obviously. But it takes something silly as that to make us realize that some of the things that we pray for may be just as silly. Or worse, as James says, evil. The prayer life of this church in James' day was painfully impoverished. It was either non-existent or pleasure-motivated, according to James. By the way, how's yours? How would mine be described by James? What were they asking for? You ever think about that? Well, James doesn't actually list it, but it was at least clear that their hearts weren't right in it. Maybe they wanted to become teachers, a legitimate request, but was, was it motivated by a desire for power and prestige and not by a desire to translate the truth of God to people? Maybe they prayed for increased wisdom, as James advocates in chapter 1, verse 5, but was it for their personal gain? If they were praying at all, James indicates that they weren't, certainly weren't praying in God's will. The scripture is clear that when we pray, it needs to be directed by what the Bible says prayer is supposed to be, right? God has given us some very clear promises and distinct parameters regarding prayer, hasn't he? And here are just a handful according to the scriptures before we wrap this up today. We will receive what we ask for when we ask according to these guidelines, and this is not a formula, by the way, but this is what the word of God says. Number one, we need to be praying as God's legitimate children in faith. Matthew chapter six, verse eight, says this, when the disciples asked Jesus to teach them to pray, Jesus said, look, don't be like them, those people that just use meaningless repetition over and over and over again. Don't be like them, for your father knows what you need before you even ask him. And then in chapter seven, just a few verses later, Jesus makes this amazing statement, ask and it will be given. 
Seek and you will find. Knock and it'll be open to you. For everyone who asks receives. And he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks it shall be open. Or what man is there among you who when his son asks for a loaf will not give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, he will not give him a snake, will he? If you then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more do you think the Father who is in heaven will give what is good to those who ask him? So you need to ask as God's legitimate children in faith, number one. Number two, you need to ask in Christ's name. John chapter 14. John chapter 14 says that. Jesus, Jesus said in John chapter 14, verse 13, whatever you ask in my name, that will I do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Now, that's not carte blanche. You just tack on the name of Jesus at the end of your prayers and you're going to get it. In my name means according to my character, according to my Father's will. You know, all of that stuff wrapped into one. That's what it means to pray in Jesus' name. In other words, you're praying as if it was Jesus making the prayer. And guess whose prayer is always answered? Jesus. Even the one in the garden. Because you know how he ended it? Not my will, Lord, but yours be done. And God's will was done. So, as legitimate children, in Christ's name, according to God's will. 1 John chapter 5, verse 14. Hope somebody's writing all this down. This should drive our prayer meetings here. 1 John chapter 5, verse 14. This is the confidence which we have before him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests which we have asked from him. Pretty straightforward, isn't it? As legitimate children in faith, in Christ's name, according to God's will, and to further God's kingdom, Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and all his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. And then for the last thing, with the help of God's spirit. That's Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, verse 26. You say, wow, I don't even know what to pray for. I just had somebody text me last night giving this situation that they were praying about, but they didn't know how to pray because it was so serious. And I texted her back. In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words, and he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he intercedes for the saints according to what? The will of God. Thank God we have the Spirit to help us. And you can't do that if you're not a legitimate child of Christ. And then those famous verses, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good, Right? To those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. In other words, whatever that answer may be, even if it's not what you think it should be, it's going to work together for your good and God's glory. This is what it means to pray with right motives. Prayer that has only one's personal goals and pleasures as its end, rather than God's will and God's glory as its end, are not really prayers at all and certainly will not warrant God's attention. That's what the scripture says. One commentator articulately observed, God bestows not gifts only, but the enjoyment of them. Yes, but the enjoyment which contributes to nothing beyond itself is not what he gives in answer to prayer. 
and petitions to him which have no better end in view than that our enjoyment are not prayers, he says. So, you want a way out of an impoverished prayer life? And I think James gives us the answer, well, implies the answer here. Make sure that what you ask for is first and foremost God-pleasing, not primarily pleasure-motivated. And as I said, James isn't messing around. (laughs) I hope you guys keep coming back. Because James is on a mission. It's a serious mission. The fact that this church was so divided in its loyalties brings out his passion as a pastor. And I believe it's reminiscent of his brother Jesus' consuming zeal when he cleansed the temple of the money changers and the sellers of merchandise on two recorded occasions in the Gospels because of his disgust at what they had done to God's house. Worldliness had entered the house of God and it needed cleansing. And James saw the church of his day going down a similar path and he could not keep silent about it. True faith is not conformed to the world, James says. When a church is becoming conformed to the world, it is revealed through the depravity of our pleasures, the poverty of our prayers, and the deplorability of our allegiances. And this is where I'm gonna stop and I'll pick it up next time with the next two points. But let me just give you Quick summary before I close. Verse four, I'll read the verses for you. You adulteresses, James says, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility to God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. He's dropping the bomb here. This is James's version of Jesus's scourge-swinging, table-turning event in the temple. This harsh and abrupt address by James, you adulteresses, as Douglas Moo says, marks the beginning of one of the most strongly worded calls to repent that we find anywhere in the New Testament. Here, if anywhere, we find the heart of James's letter. This is a major departure, by the way, from the multiple times that, G- that James called his readers my brethren, six times up until now. And now he calls them adulteresses. This is strong, strong language. Because God will not tolerate any rival. We just sang about it. He has no rival, he has no equal. James is charging them with cheating on God. And we'll get into that more next week. And by the way, just for your information, An unsaved person is not a spiritual adulterer. Only someone in a covenant relationship and who is unfaithful is called an adulterer in Scripture that way. And that's sad, isn't it? That painful, that hurts. This is heavy-duty stuff, my friends, and it's convicting to the core, to the contemporary church. Because not only does it it involve the church's need of repentance for the depravity of its pleasures, the poverty of its prayers, and the deplorability of its allegiances, but this passage also offers something else, and we'll see this next week too, but offers the supreme hope and truth of the gravity of God's grace. The gravity of God's grace. Verses five and six, and then we'll close. Or do you think that the scripture speaks to no purpose, that he jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us, but he gives a greater grace Amen? A greater grace. 
Therefore, it says God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Hey, this church may have been depraved, deprived, and deplorable in their actions, prayers, and allegiances, but they were also something else. You know what they were? They were God's redeemed children. They were desired by God. He wasn't gonna let them go, and he's not gonna let me go, and he's not gonna let you go if you're one of his children. Though we may be unfaithful to him, he will always be faithful in his commitment to us. He is jealous for me. Jealous, as the song says. He's jealous for you if you're one of his own. He loves us. He loves you. Oh, how he loves you. All of that next time. Let me close. Let's close our eyes for prayer. And I want to close with this psalm. Psalm 103, verses 8 to 13, gives us hope. And really is apropos to what we just talked about this morning. Father, may these words that I'm about to read be applied to our hearts and minds and souls. And may we hold on to them with everything we've got, for they speak of you and your love for us. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. For he has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. In Jesus' name, amen.